Hello and welcome to Turtle Tracks Podcast. This is your host, Brian Van Hooker, and I'm here today with the director of the first Ninja Turtles film, uh, Steve Barron. Hey, hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Yeah, good. So I wanted to start out by saying this, and I'm I'm 32 years old, so I've kind of uh, been a fan of Turtles my entire life, and I've never been out of it. So like I've been a, like, a fan of every single type of medium of it, and I say this without equal, I think your film is to me, the definitive turtles in the way I see them. Oh, well, thank you. That's, uh, well, I mean, I suppose we had an advantage, really, because we were first, so in a way, everything else is a variation <laughs> on it, I suppose. True. I, I just, like, I, you know, I'm a fan of the original Mirage comics, and it's close to that, but it has the right amount of humor blended in where it's that, it's the 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 drama carries, but also a good amount of comedy. So, I, I, like I said, it's it's to me just the just the perfect balance as to what to me the turtle should be. Well, that's great to hear. Thank you. Yeah, it was really. Uh, I think yeah, I I feel the same way when I when I watch films. Is I just want the kind of I want want it as grounded as possible. Uh, you know, I want to I want to be believe it and to have it not sort of take. Uh, take the mickey out of itself is what we say over here i think um and and be be true to itself so it, it is you know very uh very real grounded and and centered in in some some uh some believable reality even if it's an extraordinary idea well yeah i think that you know the focus on like keeping it really grounded and on earth and really like you know yes you're talking to giant mutated turtles but that's really the only thing you have to suspend your disbelief for everything else kind of feels like i know it's mostly north carolina but it feels like new york it feels real even the crime wave you know ninjas in new york in the 20th century sometimes comes off as silly but the fact that it was blended in with the children was very clever so like there's so much of it that was really felt like connected to our world oh good yeah it's that was what i I was all for that's why i didn't really I really didn't want to in the first film put put uh, put in the other far out characters. Really, I thought I thought you got these Ninja Turtles and this uh, giant rat as their father, and and I I think everyone else needed for me to be human. Uh, you didn't want to get into Bebop and Rocksteady and and all these other extraordinary characters because then I think it it's uh, you don't get time to really absorb and connect them to your world. And it makes the turtles and Splinter less special in that way. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, I think they were definitely enough to play with in a ninety-minute movie to to really explore them, and because uh, uh, it's, it's so so radical from what you've been exposed to before. Yeah. Now, I just saw. I, I, where did the movie start? So, like, uh, like who was the first? Like, when did the idea of a Ninja Turtles film begin? Uh, the it, it it really began I think with um, Golden Harvest in in Hong Kong, who uh, had seen the comic book um, and um, were becoming aware that a toy company was interested in taking them on, and uh, that um, they uh, that this was a, a really interesting idea. They do a ton of well, they did then a ton of uh, of action films that were involved martial arts. So they were always on the lookout. They wanted to move into America uh, and 
you know, move as a company and, and start doing uh, productions that were reaching an American audience and were still connected with Kung Fu. Karate Kid was obviously massive, and uh, there was uh, so they were they were really on the search. So they were kind of fairly obvious uh, choice for that. And they but but they were they they were going to do it as a in in their style. Maybe even in, we talked about doing it in Hong Kong actually first off when I was approached. Oh wow! Would have been a very different film. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it would have been. I mean, I think it would have had all the character and everything that we were aiming for, but uh, it would have, yeah, it would have felt quite, it would have had a different feeling, but not necessarily a bad one. I think it, it could have, it could have worked. Um, but I think, you know, you would have lost our little, you know, three or four liner characters that, that were, that we were able to cast out of New York with really good people, you know, um, Sam Rockwell, you know, mm-hmm. obviously if we'd have shot it in Hong Kong, I don't think I'd have got, been able to use a casting from, uh, from out of, out of New York for those smaller characters. It just would have been too expensive. True. Um, so who was the first on after that? Was it, was it, um, Bobby Herbeck? When, like, when did you come into the mix? Yeah. Bobby Herbeck was the first person I approached, uh, because I think um, Tom Gray knew Bobby, and uh, he said, "Will you, uh, will you write a script?" And then he did a first draft, and they sort of sent me that first draft. Um, and and then uh, after they sent me some comic books, and uh, and then I, I came in from there, and then worked with Bobby to try and get it a little closer. It was nowhere near a shooting script. It, it just wasn't. Didn't have the, uh, you know the the dramatic pull through that you need for a good film, uh, engagement and the comedy all needed to get, come into it. And, um, there was, you know, it was a, it was a start and, you know, often, often movies go through 130 drafts or whatever, but you know, we, this was draft one. And so it was, it was quite a bit off and Bobby flew over to London to work with me for a few months and we got it a little bit closer but I felt it still uh, needed to gain some uh, some sort of smart humour and uh, a, sp- a slightly stronger, more contemporary spirit. And uh, we came across a writer, Todd Langan, who was doing Wonder Years at the time and was really, really good, good television writer. Um, and uh, so we got him in to do... A, a draft, and I worked with him for a number of months. And this time in LA, started really um, developing. I mean, we didn't really have the the money yet, hadn't raised the money for the film yet because they hadn't got the they hadn't got a script they could send out. And um, but we had we had little bits of drip, you know, meeting money sort of. So I, I met with uh, I I mean, obviously knew Jim Henson uh, from earlier from TV series earlier, and. Um, I met met with him and told him about the project, and he was worried about the the violence in it. And uh, but in the end, you know, I kind of uh, promised him, even though I was I was leaning. By this time, I think the first animated series had come out, um, and 
uh, I said I was, you know, obviously I was, I was doing it more based on the comic books where there was a, a, le- a level of reality to some of the violence. There was sort of repercussions on it. And, uh, um, and so he, uh, um, you know, he, he just ended up, he's lovely, Jim, and he just ended up trusting and said, well, I'll trust you. We'll do it. I'll trust you to keep the tone of it and the spirit of it, not, you know, not to get into the mean area and not to uh, not to in- encourage anything that was not ethical or moral. Now, talking about Jim Henson, so I know that you'd met him um, when you worked on Storyteller, correct? Yes. And so what was what was working with Jim Henson like? I'm a huge, huge fan, obviously, you know. He's, he was a, a beautiful human being and a very special person. It was kind of a, it's got a bit shocking at first because he actually talks like Kermit the Frog. And so <laughs> when you met, you met, when I met him first, it was like chatting to Kermit. And uh, um, that's, you know, was pretty much his voice. And uh, so, um, and then, you know, just a gentle soul, really sweet, very creative. Um, for him, it was all about characters and their relationships with each other. And that was fantastic because that was spread right into the development of the creatures and uh, the way they were made. And uh, it it, uh, it was special. It was really a very special relationship. And, um, you know, I'll always treasure it. There's some sort of feeling that like he was not happy with the violence in it. Do, do you have any idea what he felt about the final product? Or did he live to see it, now that I think about it? Yeah, yeah, he did. Okay. Um, he, he wasn't... I, yeah, um, I can't remember the exact timing. Of, but yeah, he totally lived there. I showed it to him. And, okay. And uh, he sat down and he said, this is really cool. He really loved it. And uh, in fact, uh, I showed it to him because I was still not happy with it and felt that we didn't have enough time because there wasn't enough budget to uh, to do everything we wanted to do. And I felt there were holes in it. And um, sweetly, Jim uh, was, he said, well, talk to my friend, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who's running Disney. And uh, and I said, well, you know, I, I think we just just sold it to this new company, New Line. And, uh, and he said, well, you should talk to it talk to Disney because then you could get everything you wanted in terms of everything else you want to, to shoot to fill in the holes and things and uh, um, so he set up a meeting for me to show it to uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg which is a long story but um, it was uh, yeah he, he, he really liked it he was very pleased with the tone of it the spirit of it I'm glad to hear that because there seems to be some sort of like feeling that he wasn't happy with the violence and certainly given who he is it makes sense that he would be uh, averse to it but uh, like, I've heard you talk about how it's sort of in that swashbuckling Three Musketeers type vein and I think it is still in that sense of fun and adventure and it's not hyper violent in a way that's now he was the only the only doubt he had was at the very beginning was before we made it oh great and that yeah so that that no that's not true that he he loved, from the moment he saw it he was very happy with it and very happy with the work that his creature shop had done on it and uh, really happy he'd made it um yeah he was delighted now speaking of the creature shop who came into the picture first you or he or, or them i i 
was there first. I brought them in. Okay. Uh, because I'd worked with, with on the storyteller. So, uh, yeah, it was really, I convinced Jim to allow us to, do, to, to work with the creature shop on it. Now I'm curious. So I once attended a screening of the movie with, um, I think it was I think it was uh, Martin Robinson who operated Leo's head, and he explained a bit of the process. How like you know there's somebody in the suit, there's somebody afar controlling the head's expressions who are doing the uh, the face, and then obviously there's a voice actor that was added later for most of them. Uh, but can you explain a little bit of that process? Because it sounds I I don't completely grasp it, and it sounded a little bit chaotic. Yeah, it was pretty chaotic on the set. Um, yeah, you'd get the actor inside the suit, and then you'd get the puppeteer who was working the facial movements and the sync uh, and the dialogue from uh, off off camera. And uh, the two of them would have to be very in sync because you know the slightest movement from the person inside the suit would have to coordinate with the speech and reaction and um, you know everything from the mouth and the eyes and the eyebrows and the and the smile and everything would have to that would all have to be in sync so these guys worked for some months together they <clears throat> rehearsed every day and got their movements very close so that uh, but what what the puppeteers needed to do to be able to puppeteer is say the lines as well so you'd get and and it only made sense for the guys the actors inside the suits to also say the lines, so their, their expressions would come through the the the, the uh, their bodies, and uh, so you've got two lots of people talking at the same time and saying uh, one line of dialogue, and you know it's not absolutely insane. So it's like hearing uh, a lot of people talking, and especially when they were you know talking at and with each other, the four of them. You've got eight voices kind of yabbering away. It's like kind of chaotic. With everybody except for Raphael, it was was that the intention from the start is to recast the roles later. Uh, the yes, well, no, it wasn't. It, there was. I mean, I, I I always felt that the that there was probably some voices that would be stronger uh, performance wise uh, later, except for Raphael. I thought Josh Pace was a you know really. Uh, prominent young actor uh, in New from New York, and uh, kind of he'd never done uh, suit work. Whereas Leaf and a couple of the guys, David had had been inside uh, performance puppetry suits before. Josh was just a really good actor, and I really wanted to push that character, Raphael, to have a really strong actor inside the suit as opposed to a strong performer or a strong, experienced um, suit performer. So Josh was, uh, um, was, was his choice for that, and I always wanted to use him as the voice. Um, but, yeah, later on, um, I think Golden Harvest really just wanted, wanted a bit more um, pizzazz, uh, a, bit, a bit more well-known voices uh, for the other characters and things. And... Uh, uh, they they were going to be. It did make sense to redo them anyway. No, I know my favorite my favorite turtle's always been Donatello, and I I particularly like Donatello in this film because it feels like, you know, he's still the smart turtle, but it wasn't in a way that was like he's not going to build a spaceship or some crazy gadgets. It was 
portrayed his intelligence was portrayed through humor, which I really liked. Yes, on a teller, eh? So you were a purple kid. Yes, yeah, still am. <laughs> Do you have a favorite turtle yourself? That was on my list of questions here. Um, I like Raphael because I'm quite grumpy as well. <laughs> so he's uh, yeah, I liked his character because it was uh, he was fighting internally with himself, and that sort of made it uh, it made it really interesting. And I liked his whole relationship with uh, Casey Jones and and that, that scene with when he first meets Casey as well is, is one of my favorites I think oh yeah and rip and rip pretty much straight from the comics with the for the for the most part which was great yeah now yeah. I'm curious about when the story development was happening I feel like you know when you have a comic book or a cartoon you know you can have an episode about Leo and Mike and you can separate them out but with a movie I feel like everybody's got not, not equal time but like it needs to be distributed a little bit more evenly and have everybody covered. And I feel like your film does that in a way some of the other ones later on didn't. And was there a conscious thought about we want to make sure everybody has their equal, not equal, but like given time? Not really. Uh, no, it was it was about, I mean, I, I really liked some of the comic books. So I, I just, um, the story really came together by, uh, I, I kind of tore pages out of uh, the graphic novel and stuck them, pinned them on a book, on a wall, and uh, um, and and put them all in a slightly different order. And and then uh, there was uh, um, our development person at the time brought to to my attention a little article from a uh, a, a newspaper saying it was a Philadelphia newspaper that about a uh, Fagin character who had all these kids uh, stealing for him uh, in Philly. And uh, it felt like the missing link, basically, because uh, it didn't quite—I couldn't quite find from the comics what the foot were up to and what the shredder was up to, and how it connected to teenage. And uh, it, it wasn't quite connecting as well as it did when we brought in this uh, this idea of the Fagin, the Fagin role. Yeah, it helps kind of like like implant it in in this city in New York City, really. Yeah, totally. I always felt though, like the way the characters were distributed was really like you know, like Raph and Leo kind of carry the weight, the drama of the role, whereas Mike and Donnie kind of carry the comedy and are kind of like a little commentary on the old, the drama of the film. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. He did, Todd did a great job on it, actually. Now, writing. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, going back to the the creature shop a little bit, I'm curious. Like, what are your feelings on like how that that artwork has changed now with CGI kind of replacing it for the most part? It feels like a lost art. Um, yeah, it's a shame, really, because right? it is it is exciting when you can get something lit in a room and and it's a creature and and you you know you sit there and you start believing what's going on and the movement of it and everything. And, uh, um, I think there's still room for films with that technology and, um, and CGI, there's definitely, there's definitely room for films with CGI. I mean, I, I felt when Lord of the Rings came out, um, and I saw Gollum, I thought, yeah, this, you know, now, now is a new time. And this, this is amazing. And this is a character that I have the same goosebumps about when I see a great animatronic character. 
and I, that's the first time I, in CGI I'd felt that. And uh, so I think it can be it can be done in CGI, but it, uh, it and and can look amazing and be amazing. It's just really all about the, the animators or the puppeteers or, or whoever's uh, steering the ship. Uh, that's what either works or, or doesn't with the with the CGI. I'm noticing some kind of like it's a little bit of a reaction to maybe too much CGI. Some teams be heading back. Like I think the new Star Wars had some, and I heard you talk about where the wild things are, and it's a nice blend of those two things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, it's possible to marry to marry them, and uh, you know, with the right project, I think I think it's good. It's good too. It's too easy now to just say, you know, every page. Just say that, that there's the character and, and uh, we'll do it in post. You can feel it. Like, I feel like you just, like, there's a physical difference. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. I think you're right. Now, I was curious, so I'm curious, the first film turned out to be such a huge success. Um, was there any sort of uh, approach to you, or was there any sort of interest in you doing a sequel back when this was the time? Yeah, actually, I had a contract, contractual right to do the sequel. Actually, oh, um, and uh, um, the only thing is, there was a little bit of a strained relationship with the uh, with the the finance with, with Golden Harvest, to be honest, who obviously did an amazing job doing a film. But they, I, I, um, you know, I wanted to do this extra shooting and and fill in some of the gaps of things we didn't get time to shoot. I mean, because we made it for seven million dollars, and we shot it in seven weeks, and and the, you know, the half of the budget went to the, for the creatures, and half of the time for the shooting went to the creatures. So we were very strapped, and I I felt there were a number of loose areas within the film that just needed um, a bit more uh, a, a, a bit more to them, and we fell out over that, and. <laughs> Uh, we fell out kind of over the fact that uh, um, they, they thought it was too dark. They thought I'd made it too dark and uh, it was just um, kids would be frightened and uh, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't work and parents wouldn't bring them. And uh, so having fallen out, and obviously we sort of made up, when it came out it was a big hit, everyone was happy. But I, I just felt like I'd then done it and I thought, to do a sequel, it it wouldn't it wouldn't do much, and and I, I think they were still talking about making it more colourful and brighter and stuff, and so I just thought, well, I, you know, I, I so I'd done it, and and what what, what was the point in, in doing a sequel? And they ultimately did make it more colourful and brighter and all those things. Yeah. The sequel. Yeah. Do you remember any story ideas or anything that you thought maybe this will be in the sequel? I'm sure we worked. I'm sure we worked on stuff, but I can't remember to be honest. So, what were some of those like those loose ends that you you talked about? The um, what were some things that you felt like needed still doing that that ultimately didn't happen? You know what? I think it was more. It was the crime wave and uh, what was going on around Shredder that kind of ended up coming basically pages that we couldn't didn't have time to shoot, but there was probably. 12, 15 pages of the original script that we we never got to shoot. 
And I didn't need to do every one of them, but some of them by by just being told, we got no, no more time, can't shoot anymore, um, there's no eighth week, uh, so you've got to uh, just cut it together and make it work how it is and do it with voiceover or whatever. And that, um, for me, uh, you know, weakened it. And uh, I can't remember what the scenes were, but there were, there were, you know, a number of, of them. And, uh, we, yeah, who knows, but we never got to make it. But, you know, in the end, people seem to like the movie. And even though it's not kind of probably as good as I think it could have been, uh, it, I'm still very proud of it. So how do you feel it holds up? I, I know you've talked about having seen it after so many years um, a couple times. Yeah, um, I think I, I feel it holds up. It's quite fun. I watched it with Kevin Eastman in New York at a special kind of, this must have been about eight, nine years ago, but it was some sort of anniversary screening outdoors and a lot to, with a lot of fans. And we sat and watched it and I hadn't seen it for 15 years or something. And uh it, uh, it it does hold up. I enjoyed it. Was that on the West Side Highway? I think so, yeah. Because I was there, actually. I was living in Brooklyn at the time, and I went to that screening. And it was great. Yeah. Great. Yeah. It was cool. I think there was a turtle van there, and I think somebody from the... Yeah, I remember that, actually. Yeah. So I think that really covers everything. Uh, I really want to thank you for your time and um, your contribution to to turtle history and um yeah is there anything else you'd like to say about the movie and um no i think we covered it really i think that's all that all sounds good that was interesting thoughts that you had and uh yeah thanks for that and good luck thank you so much steve i appreciate it all right all right, so this has been Brian Van Hooker with uh, director Steve Barron for the Turtle Tracks podcast. Special thanks to the guys over at Turtle Flakes who we're doing this uh, podcast in conjunction with. And uh, thank you so much. Okay, thanks, everybody. Take thanks, care. Brian. Time to wait. We need help right quick on the double half. Maybe on a city, man, it's in trouble.